We have been looking at the book of 1 John for the last number of months. And honestly, as I was preparing for today, knowing that today is the third Sunday of Advent, that today is the Joy Sunday, I tried to figure out how in the world to make 1 John fit into the theme of joy. And, you know, I, I finally gave up. I, I mean, I was praying about it. I was asking God what He wanted people to say. But I, and I honestly thought about just doing away with the idea of looking at joy and just going on with the study of 1 John. But I, every time I prayed about it, I kept going back to God wants me to talk about joy. And I'm like, I hate this Sunday. Of all the years in the, sun, of the, of the Christmas, Christmas Christian calendar, I hate the joy Sunday. Um, because it's so hard to talk about joy, quite honestly. I had somebody years ago come up to me and say, Pastor, I can't tell you a single day in my life that I've ever experienced joy. And I wanted to say to them, as unkind as it would have sounded, I can see it. Because they walked around with a sour expression on their face. They walked around as if their life was always bad. Have you heard the term sad sack? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when I was in the military, that was, that was a term that we used all the time. Somebody was always just, oh, my life is so bad, everything's horrible, it's rotten, I can't stand my life. And that, I hate being around people like that. I quite honestly, I, hate, I, I did not pay Evelyn any money this morning. <laughs> I didn't prompt her in any way other than I sent her an email or a text message this morning with Craig and I said, the fill the fuel tank fund has reached our goal and I would like there to be a little bit of a celebration in the, in the announcements because it's a time to celebrate when God does something cool like that. Other than that, that's the only prompting she got and she preached my sermon this morning. <laughs> I was like, okay, God, I have to preach. But really and truly, what she said was, I want to just dance before my Lord. I want to just let go and dance. And then she said, what was really fun, what was interesting was she said, but then by the time I got to church, I was wondering why I was always all of a sudden down and not as exuberant as I was. And I became aware of, how did you say it? A humbleness. A humbleness came over her, an awe came over her of who God was and who she was serving, which was a perfect lead into our time of worship, because God truly wanted us to honor him and worship him. Um, but the reality is, joy is not an easy topic to talk about, because there are people, especially in the Christmas season, I know some people this year who've lost loved ones. <coughs> Um, I know people who are struggling. I know people who have been chronically ill, who have been, who are having issues and issues and issues. And I understand that, especially the Christmas season, it's hard to be upbeat and you don't want to make everyone feel bad because your life isn't the greatest and you're not really, really feeling it this year. But the, but the reality is, um, you don't have to feel it. You know. There's nothing that says that you have to be up for Christmas. As a matter of fact, in years past, we've had what we call the lament for Christmas, where you had a service where it was, oh God, this ain't a good time for me right now. I just want to let you know about being honest. And we spent the whole hour. And it was interesting that the one year that we intentionally did a lament for Christmas, I had only about 12 or 15 people that showed up that night, and they all sat in their own space across the congregation. They didn't sit together. 
And as we progressed through this service, it was powerful to watch how they interacted with the Father and they were able to just be real and genuine in their lament, in their sadness. But see, we have this tendency as evangelical Western Christians that we always have to show the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I, I picked this one intentionally. There's a song, I hate the song, but there's a song that's been around since I was a young Christian. The joy of the Lord is my strength. 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 The joy of the He gives me living water and I thirst no more. He gives me, it's like, come on, people, let's be real. Is your life really that joyful and wonderful and glorious all the time? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I think the reality would be that you face just as many problems and problems and stresses and struggles as the rest of us. So what is the difference? And this, these are some of the things I wanted to look at this morning with this idea of joy and this idea of um, rejoicing. Because we said, the very first song we sang this morning, Joy to the World, that is the quote-unquote Christian message for Christian, I mean for, for Christmas time. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's the message. The incarnation has happened. God has come into humanity and has provided a way for us. We were talking this morning in our worship team practice about the idea that Christ's incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he literally fulfilled the promise of God that the seed would come and crush the head of the serpent and break the curse that humanity was placed under. All of that being said, I want to read um, out of Nehemiah. It's on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 8. And for those of you who don't know um, the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, in the, in the history of the, of the Israelites, of the, of, the Israel, of the Jewish people, they were told by prophecy numerous, numerous, numerous times, for hundreds of years, literally, get your act together and start serving God appropriately or you are going to lose your place. The land that I gave you as a land of promise through Moses and through Joshua and Caleb is going to be taken from you and others are going to come and live where you're living and you're going to be put into exile. And they did not listen. And they were literally taken away. First, the northern kingdom of Israel, the Samaritans, were carried off by the Assyrians. And then finally, the, the, the Judites, the Benjaminites, all the people who were living in the southern kingdom, got carried off by Babylon. And the end result was, you can look through the Psalms and see some of the songs that they sang as, as part of their worship was, Oh God, our life is so harmful now. Everything's bad. We, we want to go back to Jerusalem, but we can't. Nothing's good. Well, Nehemiah and Ezra are the stories of how God allowed the Israelites to come back to the promised land following the 70 plus years of exile. First, Ezra comes back. And Ezra... Um, well, Ezra, I, I, anyway, Ezra and, and Nehemiah come back, and what they do is they build the wall first, and then after they build the wall of Jerusalem for their protection, then they begin building, rebuilding the temple, okay? If you go to Nehemiah chapter 7, it talks about the finishing of the wall. 
Uh, it's actually the last part of chapter 6, and then the first part of chapter 7. And then they start talking about all of the people who were part of the exiles, and it lists them. So it, it's basically establishing everyone who's here has a heritage and is rightfully here as Israelites. Then it starts talking about the gifts that they're going to give. And then in, verse, I mean, in chapter 8, then it says, all the people were gathered, chapter 8, verse 1, all the people were gathered as one person into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Literally, they were standing, listening to God's word being proclaimed from early morning until midday. That's pretty powerful. Literally. Hundreds of people standing in the square listening to the word of God being read to them for probably four hours. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, and Ezra the, the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, whatever his name is, on his right hand, and Pethiah, Mishael, Mechajah, I can't, I'm going to skip all these words, they were standing on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. He stand on that platform, remember. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their faces, and they worshipped with their faces to the ground. Now, you've seen pictures of, of people who are of the, of the, uh, the religion of Islam, how they are called to worship three times a day, four times a day, five times a day, and they get on their prayer mat in their grouping, and they literally get themselves prostrate on the ground with their face into the ground. That's what this is describing, okay? As he begins to read, the people all stand. As he blesses the Lord, the people say, Amen, Amen, and they lift their hands. And then they all fall to the ground and they worship God with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Shariah, Jamin, Akim, Sabadah, blah, 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 name, 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 helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there was, there was a reading in the scripture, and then there was teaching going on so that people would understand what they were hearing. And then verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Now why did he say that? Look at the next verse. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, again, remember, 70 years these people could not come back to their nation, to their place where they would come to worship God, to Jerusalem. Finally, after seven decades, this crowd of Israelites has gathered for the first public worship service of their nation after seven decades. And they hear the word of God being proclaimed. They hear God's name being honored. They're in agreement. Amen, amen. They fall down in worship. And as all of this is going on, they're beginning to mourn and weep. Why? Because this is an incredible 
incredibly blessed thing. And they're remembering, those that were old enough to know, they're remembering what it was. And they're mourning all of the years that they've lost, having the opportunity to worship God there in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, this day is holy. Do not mourn or weep. And in verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's a much more powerful statement than the glib, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Because the reality is, these people are focused on what we've lost. These people are focused on their, their depth of pain and sadness. They're grieving, truly grieving and mourning. And what they are told is, this is God's day, and you will honor him by celebrating him. You will rejoice. Their culture, when they would worship, was they would feast. All of those animals being sacrificed didn't just get thrown away. They would roast them, and then they would eat them. And part of the meat would go to the priests, but part, the rest of the meat would go back to the family that brought the sacrifice, and they would have a big party. And they would celebrate God. Now, if you read further in chapter 8, you see that this is actually the beginning of the Feast of, Tab of Tabernacles. And so, it's a week-long celebration. And what it says here was, go and celebrate, eat the, eat the fat, eat the, the good part, and drink the sweet wine. And if there's anybody in the community that doesn't have because they couldn't afford or they, didn't pre they weren't prepared, then you share with them. But make this a celebration to God, to bring honor to Him, to bring glory to Him. And if you can't find it in yourself to be happy and joyful, then by God, trust that God is going to be your strength, and let your joy come from that. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, this is hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. Probably 3,000 years ago that this happened. But the same commandment, the same um, injunction is ours to own today. Because if you were to turn in the New Testament to Galatians, excuse me, to Philippians chapter 4, Paul is talking to a specific church, but this is the canon of scripture, so all of us are supposed to read it. And it says in Philippians chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, turn a couple pages over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Same author, different church. Chapter 16, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 16 has two words in that verse. Rejoice always. So Paul's commandment to two separate churches. Number one, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And then the other church, rejoice always. The thing that's intriguing to me, and this is what, this is where I was struggling with this idea of joy and how to talk about it and how to teach on it, 
If you look in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, it lists the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says to that church, the Galatians, he says, don't be living sinfully anymore. Don't allow your, your flesh to live, to dictate the way you live. Live according to the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit that should be, should be manifest in your life is love and joy and peace. And somebody else say it. My voice is going. Long suffering. Against such things there is no law. These are the ways that you should be living your life. These things are the fruit of the Spirit. When you have God in your life, this is what should be coming out of you. This is how you should live. So then the argument or the, the confusion or the discussion for me was, okay, if I'm being commanded to rejoice, to have joy, to live joyfully, but joy is a fruit of having God in my life, how can I manifest it? How can I be commanded and expected to bring it out? Shouldn't it just naturally flow out of me? It doesn't seem necessarily right or fair that God should demand that I live a joyful life, that I should be joyful always, that I should rejoice in all situations. It should just flow. Because if you go back and look at, um, I mean, you can go online and just type in on Google, is joy a choice? I mean, there's psychologists, there's there's bloggers, there's blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, every preacher that has taught on this all, and it all says, of course it's a choice. If it's a choice, then what is this idea of this fruit of the Spirit thing? And so there's this, to me, it, it almost seemed like it was a con in conflict with each other. And then there was one last thing that I want to look at scripture-wise before we finish up our discussion. If you look in the verse, in chapter 1 of the book of James, it's just one small little verse. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it or count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet with trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But these people, James is now the author, James is now saying to them, when you go through times of testing and trouble and problems and concerns and issues and struggles, you should consider it joyful. Really? That just doesn't seem to work. The normal human thing would be that I would fuss. I would complain. I would not be happy. I would, I would, I would. But from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah all the way through to the time of Paul and James and even through to today, the command is get over yourself. This is not about you and how you're feeling. This is not about what's going good or bad in your life. If you are going to honor God with your life, you have a choice to make. And that choice, thank God that Cheyenne was here this morning. 
I was going to say it anyway, but it was much more important coming from a child. If you don't have Jesus first, and you try to put you first, you got nothing. You got chaos. And if you don't put it in the right order, it doesn't matter what you do, you don't have the ability to bring out joy. And we're commanded to be joyful in all situations. We are told to rejoice always. We are to, and, and literally, folks, when, when he says rejoice always, I'll say it again, rejoice. That's a powerful statement for somebody of that era. Because it wasn't just simply a matter of cutting and pasting and adding another few letters onto his email or his text message. He literally was taking ink and parchment that was costly and taking up space because the words were that important. As a Christian, you have a responsibility. As a person of God, you have a responsibility to live a life of joy. And it is not just, oh, God will bring joy out of you. Yes, God will bring joy out of you. It is a fruit of the Spirit. But it is also something that you can choose. It is also your attitude and your actions and your decisions will bring about or if you will, will set the stage so that joy can come out. I have a video that I want to show you. It is my favorite, favorite version of the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This was produced in 1984. George C. Scott portrays Scrooge. For those of you who may or may not have ever heard of the, ter- the story of Scrooge and Christmas Carol, what happens for, for, for Ebenezer Scrooge is he is a miser. He's a, a person who has you first in all areas of his life. He doesn't care about other people. He doesn't care about God. It's just him. And he is a, he is a sour, nasty, horrible human being. And he is being confronted one night of his life by, <clears throat> by God for all intents and purposes. It's not spoken overtly. But I have every confidence that Charles Dickens wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Although I couldn't prove it, I believe that he truly was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write this book. And at the end of the story, Scrooge is interacting with the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And the ghost of Christmas yet to come has taken Ebenezer Scrooge to a cemetery. And he's making him confront the fact that he is facing death and total despondency and a life in hell, basically. And Scrooge is being given the opportunity to make a choice. Go ahead and play the screen, this this slide. Did you hear the words that he said? I will strive to live. All the spirits will live within me. Past, present. Now, this was not a Christian movie trying to show the gospel of God. This was a secular movie showing a classic piece of literature. But the point that I'm making with this scene is that it is a choice that Ebenezer Scrooge made to change the way he was living. He was self-centered, he was self-focused, and he had absolutely no joy in his life at all. But as a choice, as a result of the choice that he made, and we could go on and watch the rest of the film, there's another ten minutes, we would see 
something transformed in him, in the way that he lived. And the way the movie ends, the way the book ends, was that he, <clears throat> there was not such a, Jolly old England never knew a more jolly fellow than Ebenezer Scrooge. And Tiny Tim, who did not die, he became a second father. So there's this incredible transformation of this miserly Scrooge into a giving, caring, loving human being. Now, from our theology and our perspective of God and the way God interacts with us, we can understand that that transformation is a result of the Holy Spirit of God coming in and changing, okay? But it starts with that initial choice. I choose to have God in my life. I choose to study and read the Bible. I choose to live according to the tenets of Scripture. And what the Scripture tells us is we are to rejoice. As Christians, whether we are going through good or bad, whether we are going through happy or sad, we are to rejoice. That doesn't mean it negates your circumstances, but it does state that setting aside your circumstances, you make a conscious choice to strive to live the way you're called to live. And I would give you, I can, I can, I almost guarantee you that when you do that, the joy will well up. It's not something you have to manufacture. If you will just allow God, like Evelyn said this morning, it was a perfect lead-in to what I wanted to say today. If you will just get past yourself and allow your hair to go on fire and allow your feet to move and not be worried about what anybody else is thinking, you would be living a life that God is being glorified by the very moves that you make. And that's what we're being called to do. It's not pretending. It's not putting on a show so that you can, yeah, rejoice, rejoice. Another, another scene from, uh, from another classic movie for Christmas that I love is Miracle on 34th Street. And at the end of the movie... The little girl is sitting there in the car and they're driving through the neighborhood in Long Island and she's going, I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. And this idea is, I'm going to choose to live the way I'm being called to live and I'm going to trust God for everything else. And the guarantee I will give you as your pastor is if you do that, the fruit of the spirit of joy will well up within you regardless of what you're facing. And then you can truly rejoice with abandon because it's there. So, anyway, I think I've said what I needed to say. I want to pray with you guys and then we're going to go. Father God, we have one week and one day left until the world stops focusing on Christ. And so I ask that you help us, God, in this eight, nine days that we have left. Give us the opportunity, Lord, to live as if no one was watching, with the understanding that everyone is watching. And help us, God, to rejoice and to live joyfully and to proclaim the truth through our joyful, exuberant life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be